0: Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Good morning. On this fourth Sunday of Advent. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Lena Van Wyk, and I direct the farm ministry here at Redeemer. It's such a joy to be with you all. The last time I was up here at this pulpit, I was quite pregnant with our first child, and now she's here in all her drooling glory, the love of our lives. And what a particular honor to sit in this incredible biblical text with you the famous Magnificat, the Song of Mary. I've grown more connected to Mary since my husband Judson bought me this beautiful icon of Mary and Jesus, hand painted in Bulgaria, bought on Etsy. Um, I love the depth in her serious expression. Even the weariness in her eyes, I love the bags under her eyes, which I now have a greater understanding of (laughs) several months into motherhood. So little sleep. Um, Icons are paintings of biblical figures that are meant to be tools of contemplative prayer. They have been used in churches since the first days of Christianity, especially in the Eastern Orthodox communion. And church tradition has it that the first iconographer of the church was the Apostle Luke, the author of today's gospel. Um, and that the first icons that he painted for the church were of Mary and Jesus. You can tell that Luke has a particular admiration for Mary because of all the Gospels, his Gospel paints her character in the richest detail. When we were preparing to have our, when we were preparing to have our baby, Judson and I decided that we were going to bring this icon with us to the hospital. They suggested in our birthing class that we should have some sort of focal object, some motivational object. And we figured, well, how much more motivational can you get than the mother of our Lord? So when the time came, we were rushing to the hospital after my water broke at midnight, and Judson realized halfway out of the neighborhood that we had left the icon at home. So we turned the car around, and we went back to get it, which was a very Anglican nerdy moment of us. (laughs) But I'm so glad that we did, because its presence helped me immensely in what turned out to be an excruciatingly long 45-hour labor, as as Ashley mentioned in her sermon a few weeks ago. So Judson and I bring this icon to the hospital room where it looks really out of place. This was no dark cathedral lit by candlelight and scented with incense, but a sterile modern room scented with antiseptics and lit by fluorescence. And for the first 24 hours, I did not really look at the icon, I must admit. I looked at the beeping machines and the needles and the IV bag and the fetal monitors. And the more I looked at these things, the more my fear rose and rose. Why wasn't this baby coming? Was I going to have to have a C-section? How could I break out of this hospital room? And the whole time, I felt the Lord's presence beckoning me out of my fear and into trust. But my eyes kept on gobbling up these images of all the medical instruments, and trust seemed impossible. About 36 hours in, when I was reaching the brink of my sanity, my sweet doula set up this icon and a little electric tea light candle under it and I started to shift my gaze to the faces of our Savior and his mother. And I'm too Protestant to pray to Mary, but I prayed to the Father as I stared at her face and her son's face in their golden halos. And for the next many, many hours, I just stared and stared and stared at this icon and had the most intense spiritual experience of the Holy Spirit's presence. There is a name for the practice of staring and praying at an icon called Visio Divina, like Lectio Divina, But I've never been much good at it because I'm too distractible. But after two sleepless nights and endless contractions and in the liminal space of labor, a spiritual focus came that I'm not accustomed to. If Mary could do this, unattended and in squalor, I thought, I can do this with all this help in a hospital room. As I stared at their faces, the labor finally started to progress and finally Lilius came into the world, healthy and beautiful, praise the Lord. Trust finally came, a pure grace. And isn't it trust that makes Mary so remarkable? How could a young, unmarried teenager have so much peaceful trust when an angelic messenger tells her that she is not only going to bring a child into this world, a hard enough feat on its own, but that her child will be the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior, conceived not in the conventional way but by a mysterious encounter with the Lord? How could she have trust when this unexpected pregnancy might endanger her engagement and destroy her reputation. That is the question we will sit with this morning. What is the source of Mary's trust? And secondly, what is the focus of her trust? What is her focal point? What does Mary have her eyes locked on? Put in another way, where does Mary's trust come from and where is her trust directed? So if you'll open your Bibles, if you have them to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, starting at verse 26, let's ask the Scriptures to guide us towards answering that question. First, let us pray. Lord, may our souls magnify you this morning as we let Mary sing to us of your strength and what you have done for us. May we sit in adoration at your feet, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. So first, where does Mary's trust come from? Well, it's clear from the angel's conversation with her that there is something in Mary's spirit that is prone to trust. The angel tells her, even at her young age, and historians think she was somewhere between 12 and 16, which blows my mind, Mary has found favor with God. Of all the young women in Israel, she is chosen. I think it's fair to say that she had an inner greatness of spirit, that he can see, that the Lord can see. An inner greatness of spirit that he in fact made for this divine purpose. This isn't to discourage the rest of us who have to struggle towards saintliness, but to name that there are those people of the faith throughout the ages that have an inner humility of heart and to celebrate them and thank God for them for they encourage the rest of us and drive us on to holiness. Who comes to mind when you think of this type of person? Who do you look to to encourage you in your walk of holiness? But there are moments in Mary's exchange with the angel that it is clear that even she has fear and doubt. Mary is, quote, greatly troubled, it says in verse 29, when the angel first appears to her. She asks him how it will be possible for her to bear the Son of God when she's a virgin. And so what does the angel do to encourage her trust? In verse 30, he says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. He has already called her, O favored one, when he greeted her. But he repeats this, and he uses her name for the first time. Isn't this remarkable? Can you imagine an angelic being using your first name and telling you that you are favored by God? There is a divine intimacy here, where the Lord encourages Mary through his angelic servant naming her in the most profound way. Are there not times in our walk with the Lord when our trust needs to be buoyed by his loving affirmation of us, when we need to feel his favor? When we are gripped by fear, we forget who we are, and shame creeps in with its wretched hands. How has the Lord made you feel seen and loved in your walk with him? How has that encouraged your spirit? One of the most delightful parts of raising Lily so far has seen, is seeing her love of Judson, her dad, and her inherent trust in him that, she won't, that he won't drop her when he tosses her up in the air or runs her frantically through the house like this when she needs a new diaper. <laughs> Babies receive so much love and care. i got to laugh. <laughs> Babies receive so much love and care from us, and trust flows from that. We are all called to be childlike in the arms of our Heavenly Father. Something that really struck me in this passage in the past few weeks is how God always uses also uses Elizabeth to instill trust in Mary. The divine, compassionate work, knowing that Mary needed companionship and human confirmation of this crazy thing happening to her and her body. God does not leave her alone in this holiest of tasks that she has, but he uses her existing family member to come around her, to even journey through pregnancy and birth with her. Mary rushes to be with Elizabeth once the angel tells her that Elizabeth Elizabeth will also bear a son, for, quote, nothing is impossible with God. The Holy Spirit fills both Elizabeth and the unborn John inside her womb when they encounter Mary, and she literally yells out, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Can you imagine how comforted you would be by this if you were Mary? Imagine you're a few months pregnant by a miraculous act, and the reality of the situation is starting to sit in. You are. How are you going to tell your parents? How are you going to tell your fiancé, your community? How are you going to face what might come? Was the angelic visitation just a dream? Are you losing your mind? Then, this older woman you trust, she knows. She knows without you even having to say a word. She knows what has happened to you, confirming in your heart that it really is a miracle of God. The Holy Spirit uses others in our life to confirm the particular ways that God is at work in us. It's one of the great joys of walking with the Holy Spirit that when you think you're hearing a word from God, a fellow believer comes up to you out of the blue and says, I'm hearing such and such from the Lord for you. And it makes you catch your breath because it's exactly what he's been putting on your heart. He knows that we need to hear from him in community. So we have a clearer picture of the source of Mary's trust, her humility, her affirmation from the Lord, and her confirmation from community. But what exactly is it that Mary's trust will happen? What are the promises she is clinging to? Where is her trust directed? Well, let's listen to her sing. It's so beautiful in the narrative that Mary responds to Elizabeth's poetic prophesying over her with her own poetic song in verses 46 to 55. This song, which Christians have called the Magnificat for a very long time, is one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. In it, Mary encapsulates Israel's longing for salvation and redemption and justice. Mary is joining a tradition of women who sing victorious songs of praise in the Hebrew Bible, specifically songs where Israel is delivered. Miriam, the sister of Moses, sings an exodus after the destruction of the pursuing Egyptian army in the Red Sea. I love this with instruments in her hands. And then Deborah, the great warrior woman in the book of Judges, she sings a long song in praise of God's victorious deliverance of Israel from the Canaanites. And then Hannah, the mother of Samuel, who Bishop Allen preached about the first Sunday of Advent, she sings a song that has so many echoes with the Magnificat, where the mighty are laid low and the poor are lifted up. And so it is with her ancestors, her foremothers, that Mary sings of the Lord's great deliverance that she trusts will come through the birth of her son, the Messiah. But interestingly, she does not sing of a great battle being won against foreign enemies. Many hoped the Messiah would be a great warrior king who would throw off Rome and lift Israel as a nation. Instead, Mary, with Hannah, she sings of the victory of the world's poor and hungry and humble and the downfall of all of those who are proud and mighty and greedy. God will lift up Israel and God will lift up all the world's faithful. The victory she proclaims is even more epic, even more universal. In her song, she echoes Israel's prophets in bringing divine justice to our fallen world of haves and have-nots. She prophesies that her son will bring a new kingdom and a new order to the world, in which the poor are no longer oppressed and those who are hungry are filled with good things. When Jesus announces the beginning of his ministry in Nazareth 30 years later, he reads out a passage from Isaiah 61 as his mission statement for his ministry, saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus confirms what his mother sings while he is still in her womb, that it is indeed he who will bring this jubilee vision to fruition. The Gospel of Luke makes it clear that Joseph and Mary are themselves poor. There are lots of hints, like what they can afford to sacrifice at temple, and the fact that Christ's birth is attended by shepherds, who are the lowest class of folks in first century Palestine. Luke wants to emphasize that the Christ child comes into the world as a low-income child. Mary says God has looked upon her, quote, humble estate in the ESV translation. though the more literal translation of the Greek is her humiliation. I think that that word strikes a more powerful chord because there is a humiliation to being poor because of the cruelty of our world. Our society likes to blame the poor for their own plight as if it were a moral failure. But Mary's tone is not of self-pity, but of jubilation. She trusts the Holy Scriptures that the Lord has always been on the side of those on the margins, and always will be. She trusts that the Lord is sending a sign by choosing her, a poor young teenager in a backwoods town, to bear the Messiah. He's sending a message that he is for the poor of the land and for all of Israel. Let's transpose this into our time and our place. It would be as if a young teenage woman living in poverty in a town no one has heard of, in a country that most Americans could not point to on a map as if that young woman was chosen to bear the Son of God. A- One oh, God, hmm. those birth hormones are still not quite out of me. <laughs> but what an affirmation to her that the Lord heard her plight and the plight of her family and her community. And more than heard their plight, he was lifting them up as the main actors in his great drama of redemption. In a world that would never choose her, God was choosing her. And Mary trusts that in choosing her, the Lord is flipping the world upside down. Those who the world lifts up, the mighty one pushes down. Those who are usually sent away empty are filled with good things, Mary sings. And those who are usually filled with good things are sent away empty. It's as if the birth of her son is a giant earthquake that shakes the very foundations of the earth and raises up the low places and makes the mountains tumble down. Just like an earthquake shows the great power of God to change the very topography of ground we thought was so unmovable, so the birth of Jesus shows God's power to upend the very nature of society that we thought was set in stone. Jumping our head to our moment in Christian history, I'd say this upheaval is one of the now and not yet truths of the gospel. It has come to pass in the sense that Christianity's shaping of the world and its two billion followers has been, for the most part, good news for the poor. In fact, the majority of those two billion Christians are poor. Throughout our Christian history, the Holy Spirit has worked in the church to uplift and encourage the poor, to advocate on behalf of the poor, to build communities among the poor, and lobby those in power to care for the poor but we have also failed as his church to be Christ's hands and feet to fully realize his kingdom in our sinfulness. And in our fallen world, there are those who are destitute in every generation and far often too often. We ignore them. We deemphasize this part of the gospel in favor of more palatable parts that don't threaten our hierarch- hierarchical ordering of the world. Only Christ's return and his judgment of the whole world will fully bring this good news to the poor into full glory. In the meantime, as St. James says in his epistle, quote, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, for they will pass away like a wildflower. Interestingly, this is one of the few other times in the Greek New Testament that the word for humiliation that Mary uses is used again. James, like Mary, shows that the kingdom turns the world upside down. He tells those of us who are poor to know that in Christ's kingdom our poverty will be lifted up. And he tells those of us who are rich that we should seek to become poor like Mary, for our wealth counts for nothing in eternity unless it is given away. At the free farmers market that that we host in the fall at our church, sometimes it is so easy to think that we are the blessed ones, giving food away to those who are less blessed. But Mary's Magnificat suggests that To to us, that the many who arrived to receive free food were indeed more blessed in his kingdom than those of us who gave it away. They were higher than we were. We gave not because they were to be pitied, but because in doing so we were feeding Jesus, as Matthew 25 tells us. The kingdom is upside down. The river of blessing flows in the opposite direction that we expect it to. This makes most of us squirm because it's so, so countercultural in America. We love rags to riches stories or even better riches to riches stories. I am so embarrassed to admit that I invested 2 full hours watching this truly horrible Netflix Christmas rom-com called A Castle for Christmas <laughs> a few days ago. Anybody want to else admit that, that they've watched this oh, yes. Lee. <laughs> so, it's one of those Hallmark-style Christmas rom-coms romances that is so bad that you are embarrassed for the movie as you are watching it. <laughs> But somehow you keep watching it, even though you're like, this is just so bad, this is so bad. So it's, um, the, in it, a middle-aged, famous, and very wealthy romance novel author, played by Brooke Shields and her very iconic eyebrows, goes to Scotland after her marriage falls apart and ends up buying a castle and falling in love with the duke who owned it. It ends with Brooke Shields' character being collected for a splendid castle Christmas party dressed to the nines by her duke who is a her on horseback, and they live happily ever after. The true story of Christmas right there. Number seven on Netflix globally. This film has garnered 10 million viewing hours just this week. And after watching it, I thought, shoot, I'm going to have to include this as a sermon illustration, because there's no other way I'm going to justify spending two hours (laughs) of my life watching this rubbish. (laughs) So we are here, and here I am. But really, I found myself thinking, what would her character's Magnificat be? I am so hashtag blessed because some magical Christmas fairy dust has done very great things for me. For my talent has gotten me great wealth and fame, and my great wealth and fame have gotten me a castle and a duke. And what could one want more in life for Christmas than that? And you do have to scratch your head and think, how did we get here, when that's how our culture narrates Christmas? What if Mary could watch that film? What would she think? But here's the thing. Mary's world was not really all that different. Her culture loved what our culture loves wealth and success and power and influence. But Mary's eyes, they aren't on that. Her eyes are on the miraculous work that the Lord is doing that is so far above that. She trusts that God has done great things for her but not great as the world defines great, but great as God defines great. She trusts that Elizabeth is speaking the truth when she calls her the mother of my Lord. She trusts that the honor of getting to bear God's son, the Messiah of her people, the savior of the whole world, that this honor is cause for the greatest possible rejoicing. My soul magnifies the Lord, she exclaims, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And isn't that what we do? There have been roughly 50 generations since she sang this song, and every generation of Christians have celebrated her and her son every Christmas throughout the year. We gather, we sing her story, we adore her son. Netflix is gonna Netflix, but we, the church, persevere and tell the truth of her story and the truth of her son. Notice Mary doesn't say, all generations will call me amazing. She doesn't point to her own worthiness, but instead to the great gift God is bestowing on her. She points to the mercy that he is granting her and to all of Israel, because she and other faithful have feared him. Mary is blessed to be able to carry the savior of all creation in her body. And it is that blessing that she fixes her gaze on. It is that blessing that helps her endure all the things that will come, from laboring in a stable in a strange city, to watching her beloved baby be beaten and crucified. She fixes her eyes on the mighty one and her spirit rejoices in God, her savior.